Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's legal podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. And on this episode of the show, we're going to do a deep dive into one of the cases the Supreme Court heard just this week, a case with a 12-year-old boy at center. Menachem Zivotofsky was born to American parents in Jerusalem back in 2002. Earlier that same year, Congress passed a law that let U.S. citizens in that scenario have Israel listed as their place of birth on their passports. You see, since 1948, American policy has held that since the status of Jerusalem is disputed, it takes no position on whether Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. If you're born in Jerusalem, your passport says only Jerusalem. And so President Bush attached a signing statement to that 2002 law saying he just would not enforce the passport provision because it's his job, not Congress's, to administer foreign affairs. Menachem's parents wanted Jerusalem Israel on his passport, but his passport was printed with only Jerusalem as his place of birth. That same year, in 2002, Menachem's parents filed a suit against the State Department. And since then, this case has gone up and down through the court system, landing for the second time this week at the U.S. Supreme Court. Arguing the case for the Zivotovskys was Eliza Lewin. Her law partner and father, Nathan Lewin, argued the case the first time it came to the court, back in 2012. Monday was Eliza's turn. Welcome to Amicus, Eliza Lewin. Thank you very much for having me. So I wonder if you can start off by explaining the constitutional claims in this case, because it got spun in the press as a referendum on the Supreme Court's views of Jerusalem as capital of Israel. What are the constitutional issues underlying the case that folks maybe didn't quite get at the first pass? You're right. The media has presented this as the court determining whether or not Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and that is actually not what the court is going to be deciding in this case. The, the question that is before the court is really twofold. One is whether what you put on a passport as a place of birth even amounts to recognizing the sovereignty of a country. Um, and the second is, if it does amount to formal recognition of a sovereign, then which branch of government has the authority to recognize foreign sovereigns? Is it, as the president and the solicitor general have claimed, an exclusive authority of the executive branch? Or does Congress have a say in recognizing foreign sovereigns? And can you explain the, the kind of constitutional roots of that disputed power claim? In other words, the president says he has something called recognition power. Where does that emanate from in the Constitution? When the law was passed, as you noted, the President Bush issued a signing statement and claimed this interfered with his authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. Now, you're right. Where does that authority come from? There is no place in the Constitution that discusses a recognition power. The Solicitor General and the Executive Branch base their position on the Receive Ambassadors Clause in the Constitution. The President is given the right to receive foreign ambassadors. We have argued that that clause in the Constitution 
was purely meant to give the president a ceremonial responsibility. There was no desire or intention to give the president some broad foreign policy power in that um, clause. And there are scholars who agree with that position, who say that Congress was not in session 12 months a year. You didn't know when the ambassadors would come to the United States. And the president was given the responsibility, literally, to accept their credentials and receive the ambassadors. It had nothing to do with recognition. So talk a little bit, Aliza, about the source of Congress's authority to make contravening declarations in passports. What is the the claim uh, of the Zivotofskys in this case about where Congress's power to get some skin in the game comes from? So Congress has the authority in the Constitution to uh, pass laws that regulate foreign commerce, uh, immigration, naturalization, and historically Congress has enacted passport legislation determining the content of a passport, the duration of a passport. And we say that this falls within that type of legislation, that this is passport legislation, and it is merely a law that talks about what should be included or what may be included on a passport, and that therefore Congress has the authority to enact this law. One of the things that I found so interesting at oral argument was this sub rosa fight that was happening about what your passport is. Uh, Is it – I think uh, Justice Kagan kind of fliply said, hey, you know, you're asking for a vanity plate. Or is it just some document that belongs to the government? They give it to you. It is a simple neutral statement of information and that you shouldn't invest a lot of your sense of identity into your passport. How did you think that played out? A passport, or I should say the place of birth listing on a passport, um, historically, and the State Department even acknowledged when we had limited discovery in this case, that the place of birth on a passport is put there as a means of identification. Individuals are identified by the United States, whether it's in cables or descriptions, by their name, date of birth, and place of birth. And the passport ends up being a document that records the information that the individual has provided as those factors for identification. The passport itself is used to facilitate essentially the commerce, the movement of people between countries. And it does, when you present it, show or designate that you are an American citizen. But it is not... And that's where I suggested we disagree with Justice Kagan. It's not a political statement having to do with where the individual was born or making any kind of statements about recognizing foreign sovereigns. That's not the purpose of a passport, and that's not what a passport does. A passport merely identifies someone as an American citizen so that when they travel internationally, it provides them the smooth transfer afforded to American citizens. So I want to let's talk about the argument itself. Uh, almost from the get-go, Justice Anthony Kennedy said, "Here, I, I've got a compromise for you. Uh, it's been used before," and he gave the exact language. He more or less said, "Why doesn't the passport just say Jerusalem, Israel, and have a kind of a disclaimer?" Uh, let's listen to him. Suppose that the uh, president and the secretary of state put on the passport 
Uh, the place of birth, I've written it out, the place of birth on this Jerusalem-born citizen's passport has been listed as Israel at the holder's request. This designation is neither an acknowledgment nor a declaration by the Department of State or the President of the United States that Jerusalem is within the borders of the state of Israel. What did you make of Justice Kennedy's kind of compromise position where you could just say what Congress wants to say and the president can just say, I don't believe that's true? I think that what Justice Kennedy said is uh, is correct. I am not sure that the disclaimer, that the place for the disclaimer is the passport because if you put the disclaimer on the passport, and I think the Solicitor General mentioned that later on, then you are ensuring that every time that passport is shown, that statement is being made over and over again, whereas if um, the passport just says Israel on it, then it's indistinguishable from the other passports. But I do think that it is key and important, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, for the United States to make that disclaimer. If the United States did it in the past, as they did, we said, with Taiwan, there's no reason why they can't do it again now. China, and if we talk about Taiwan for a little bit, in 1994, the Congress passed a law saying that individuals born in Taiwan may list Taiwan as their place of birth on their U.S. passport. The United States does not recognize Taiwan's sovereignty. They recognize China as sovereign over the island of Taiwan. And the Chinese were, as Justice Scalia mentioned and is included in the joint appendix, there's documentation showing that, that the Chinese were very upset when Congress passed this law. In fact, initially, China refused to grant visas to individuals whose passports listed Taiwan as their place of birth. So the United States came out with this broad statement, included the statement in the Foreign Affairs Manual, and said this does not change the United States' position on China. We still recognize China's sovereignty um, over Taiwan. And ultimately, the issue went away, even though every time an individual shows that passport that says Taiwan, it is, quite frankly, a thumb in the eye of the Chinese. But that that raises a question that I had throughout the argument is I think even if we can assume that the American public, you know, and I, I don't know if we can assume this, understands that the executive branch and the Congress simply have differing views on the status of Jerusalem, isn't the concern, at least the concern we heard from the liberal wing of the court, that, you know, Palestinians who after Bush attached his signing statement in 2002 to this legislation, you know, Don Verrilli said Palestinians were rioting in the streets, right? They were convening meetings in order to say we now declare that Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. And I guess under underneath that is this question that I have about who are we worried about the mixed signals? Who who are we concerned about? Are we concerned that Americans don't understand that you can simply have two different branches who have different views of foreign policy? Or are we concerned about folks out there in the world who don't differentiate between a statement that the president's making and a statement that the Congress is making and simply read this as, to quote you, a thumb in the eye? They just take this as the American government has now taken a stand on Jerusalem. I honestly don't believe that the people that you describe, the constituency that you describe, really cares that much 
about what goes on the passport of an American citizen as their place of birth. 2002 was the middle of the second intifada in Israel. Riots and demonstrations were happening for a whole host of reasons, having absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with this law being passed. It seems to me that the notion that our court should make a decision on whether or not this law is constitutional and decide a separation of powers question, arguably, on the basis of what is a misperception by a foreign uh, community that there's been no documentation, no hard evidence that this really is an issue of import to them. It's really speculation. That should not be the basis of the court's decision. Uh, well, this is let's listen for a minute because this is the Chief Justice John Roberts, who I think agrees with your with what you've just said. Here's him describing the quote self fulfilling prophecy that happens when you decide to make a big fuss in this case, Bush and the signing statement, uh, and how that plays out. So let's listen to that. The executive branch made such a big deal out of it. I mean, they issue a statement saying this is unconstitutional and all that. They could easily have said, this is no big deal. They're just letting whoever's born there pick the name they want to put on. With all due respect. Nothing, nothing, to, nothing to see here. Move on. And, and the, we're proving that by going ahead and signing it. I, and, over the, and over the intervening course, the, ex- the executive has litigated this uh, as a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's going to be such a huge deal. You know, I think that that is right. I mean, the the United States already does recognize for practical purposes Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem. Justice Alito pointed out that Israel gave our client a birth certificate that was recognized and accepted by the United States. The United States recognizes that individuals who commit crimes in Jerusalem will be prosecuted by the Israeli government. What goes on a passport should be part of that essentially de facto recognition of Israel's acting as the sovereign over Jerusalem. And to suggest that that is somehow a bigger deal than any of the other ways that we recognize Israel's acting sovereignty, I think is a mistake. And I think the Chief Justice was correct. You know, if this is so different and is such a quote-unquote big deal, then why did President Bush sign the bill into law? He could have vetoed it. But isn't that, for me at least, that's kind of the paradox of this particular litigation, is that symbols do matter. And even though for all practical purposes, and I think this is what Justice Sotomayor was trying to push on, uh, even if for all practical purposes the United States does recognize uh, Jerusalem as the capital, these symbols matter. And it seems to me in a deep sense the best evidence we have that these symbols really matter is that the Zivotovskis want to have Israel on on the passport. In other words, this is a deep and personal symbolic statement, and it means the world to them to be able to say it. But I think it's it's a tough position to be in to say this is just a symbol, it shouldn't matter, but it's symbolically, I think, on the other side, also very, very powerful. But the symbol, when you talk about the Zivotovskis, yes, individuals, when they put down on their passport, their place of birth, and to come back to the Taiwan example, 
Uh, Let's just take a step back for a minute, if I can. The State Department has allowed individuals born in Haifa, for example, who are opposed to having Israel listed as their place of birth on their passport, to remove Israel from the passport and to list instead the city of birth, even though that goes against their general rule. What happened in this situation is that individuals do feel strongly that they want their document, they want to have the same choice, okay, that those who have decided for personal reasons they want to remove Israel from the passport, if you're going to allow those individuals the choice, if we're going to say we recognize that you may be opposed to the state of Israel, so we'll let you take Israel off your passport, then it seems to me correct that the Congress should be able to say to those who want to put Israel on their passport that they may identify themselves as being born in Israel, particularly when, as we've just said, there are all these situations where the United States does recognize Israel's de facto sovereignty over Jerusalem. Uh, And that passport then ultimately as a symbol, that symbol to the outside world doesn't say anything about that because that symbol will only have Israel listed on the passport and won't be distinguishable from any of the other passports that say Israel. So it becomes a very personal statement and not a very public, you know, kind of diplomatic statement. Justice Scalia was trying really hard, I thought, at argument to push you to more or less reframe your argument to say that, hey, Congress can go ahead and enrage whoever it wants. It has as much power uh, to enrage folks as pursuant to foreign policy as anyone else. Let's listen to him. Ms. Lewin, I, I thought your position was you couldn't care less if the State Department thinks that this is going to interfere with our relations with the Palestinians, that Congress is entitled to do what it is authorized to do under the Constitution, even when that contradicts, uh, let's assume they can't recognize a country, but they can declare war on a country, can't they? That, yes, uh, yes. that the State Department has decided to recognize and, and, and to be friendly with. Yes, just the Congress same. can do that. That is correct. Congress can do that. And the test, if And you say it can do the same here. And, and the fact that the State Department doesn't like the fact that it makes the Palestinians angry is irrelevant. It seemed to me that this wasn't quite what you were trying to say. Uh, were you trying to argue that Congress's actions simply won't impact on foreign relations or that even if it has a really deleterious impact, that's okay because Congress has the constitutional prerogative to do that. Primarily the latter, although I think the former is still true. I think what Justice Scalia was saying is that if you look at the legal precedent, if the Congress enacts a law and it is within its jurisdiction and authority to pass that law, then the only way you can... Uh, limit or narrow Congress's authority is if the legislation would somehow prevent the executive branch from, and the cases, the quote is, accomplishing its constitutionally assigned functions. And the argument, which I did not because I kept getting cut off, but in the Nixon case there's a and a Morrison v. Olson, there are cases that hold that. And here... This act of Congress is not 
restricting the president from accomplishing his constitutionally assigned functions. Lisa, you're making me realize that maybe in future uh, podcasts, Amicus could just have oral advocates on to say what they were trying to say when they got questioned. (laughs) Can you tell us how many questions you were asked in your 30 minutes uh, at the podium? I'm told it was 51 questions in 30 minutes. That's quite amazing. Was that more than you expected or fewer than you expected? I did not go in with any preconceived notion of how many questions ordinarily get asked or don't, quite frankly. Um, I knew that the questions were coming at me quickly. I knew that justices were speaking over one another and that I barely had the chance to give one justice an answer before the other one would chime in quite a bit during this argument. I I have to ask you this just because it was so striking, uh, and this is a big change of gears, but bear with me. It was so striking that there you were giving your first oral argument at the U.S. Supreme Court. How many has your father done? He's argued 28. Okay. (laughs) And there you were, and you went up to the podium when you first walked into the room, and you hugged each other, and your kids were there, and your mom was there. And, you know, I have to tell you, I've been covering the court for 15 years, and most oral advocates look like they're sort of taken out of a a box uh, where you keep the corsage for prom, and they just pop out in there perfectly prepared, but it looks like they were raised to be here. This was this wonderful family enterprise, and I wonder if you could tell us what that was like for you. Well, I made the decision to actually handle the argument only about two weeks before the argument when the date came for us to submit the form to the court notifying them who was going to be handling the argument. Uh, My father had encouraged me to do the argument, but it felt to me like I was being asked to step into some enormous shoes. And I was not sure whether I felt comfortable taking on that responsibility. I also realized, you know, there was a a law student that said to me at one point, you know, God bless you, you have millions of people behind you. And I realized, wow, that's (laughs) that's an awesome responsibility. Um, But it's really also an awesome honor. And I, two weeks before, decided that this was really a unique opportunity. And the truth is, it was, as some people have said to me, and it's true, a gift that my father gave to me that money can't buy and that I will always um, forever be grateful to him for having done that. It was an extraordinary experience, and I'm very glad that I, I agreed to take it on. Well, congratulations on your first oral argument. Uh, I imagine there will be more and we'll be there uh, stalking you throughout. (laughs) Aliza Lewin specializes in litigation and government relations at Lewin & Lewin in Washington, D.C. Aliza, thank you for being on Amicus. Thank you very much, Dahlia. Now, we would be remiss if we did not also mention another astonishing case that was argued this week at the court. Yates versus United States seems like a crazy case with nutty facts, and I promise journalists had a lot of fun reporting it. But actually, it reveals a lot about growing frustrations in the court with federal law and what Justice Sam Alito calls the overcriminalization of tiny, trivial acts. Briefly, the facts of the case. John Yates, a Florida fisherman, was caught with a bunch of undersized red grouper. He was ordered to preserve them and return to shore with the grouper in his boat. Instead, he had his crew throw the grouper overboard and replace them with bigger ones. And he was tried and convicted under Sarbanes-Oxley, a 2002 
post-Enron federal statute, which makes it a crime to tamper with or destroy, quote, any record, document, or tangible object. Now, conviction can bring up to 20 years in prison, and a jury convicted him, and Yates served 30 days in jail. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upheld his conviction under the theory that, well, a fish qualifies as a tangible object. That's right, sports fans. We spent an hour at SCOTUS on Wednesday trying to determine whether a 19-inch grouper was indeed a tangible object under what some people not unreasonably characterize as a document-shredding statute. It was a rocking good time, fish puns abounded, and we thought we'd just play some of the highlights of the argument today to give you a sense of what you were missing if you weren't hanging out at One First Street this week. Okay, up first we have Assistant Solicitor General Roman Martinez trying to explain the seriousness of Yates' crimes to the justices. Chief Justice John Roberts is amused. To emphasize what happened here, Mr. Yates was given an explicit instruction by a law enforcement officer to preserve evidence of his violation of federal law. He directly disobeyed that. He then launched a, uh, an, a convoluted cover-up uh, scheme to, to cover up the fact that he had destroyed the evidence. He enlisted other people, including his crew members, in executing that scheme and in lying to the, uh, to the law enforcement officers about it. You, and you make him sound like a mob boss or something. I mean, he was caught... The fish were uh, — how many inches short of uh, permitted were the fish? The fish were it, — it varied fish by fish, Your Honor. And, but <laughs> the Obama administration's lawyer went on to valiantly try to get the court focused on the point that, like it or not, a fish is indeed a tangible object. Neither Chief Justice John Roberts nor Justice Antonin Scalia are amused. Well, what if you stopped them on the street and said, is a fish a record, document, or tangible object? I, I think if, if, you, if you asked them that question and you, and you pointed them to the fact that... I don't think you would get a polite answer to either of those questions. <laughs> Up next, we have the fisherman's lawyer, John Badalamenti. Justice Anthony Kennedy challenges him about whether the statute can criminalize the destruction of photographs of a fish if it doesn't criminalize the destruction of the fish itself. The photograph is not a tangible object under our definition. If it were a digital camera and it's stored on a memory card on it, that would be a tangible object. Is a piece of paper a physical object? A piece of paper is a piece of paper, physical object. Is it an object? It's an object as well. But why isn't a film if it's not I'm talking not about a film on one of these screens, but an old-time film that you can pick up. (laughs) Picture, a picture. Well... In the end, Antonin Scalia seemed to speak for most of his colleagues when he started getting madder and madder at the government for bringing this prosecution under this law in the first place. Yeah, he only got, what did he get, 30 days or something? Yes, Your Honor. But he could have gotten 20 years. What kind of a sensible prosecution is that? Your, Your I mean, Honor, is there nothing else? You, who, who, who do you have out there that, uh, that exercises prosecutorial discretion? But perhaps unsurprisingly, Justice Anthony Kennedy, the perennial swing vote at the court, got the last laugh when he asked whether a post-Enron destruction of evidence statute really could sweep up Red Grouper in its broad net. Perhaps Congress should have called this the Sarbanes-Oxley Grouper Act. (laughs) Perhaps, Your Honor. And that is it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. Note that I made no fish puns. Please let us know what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear more of or less of in upcoming episodes. You can reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. 
And if you like the show, help us spread the word by leaving a review on our page in the iTunes store. We really appreciate it. Thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.